I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? I know. Welcome to the broadcast, folks. This is Theology Unplugged. We are coming to you, of course, from the Credo House, right? Yes, but we are not in our regular studio. We are actually in the middle of the Credo House, right? Jam-packed. We're surrounded by people. Jam-packed. We are jam-packed. All we right. have like eight I'll, people I'll here. <laughs> no, we are not jam-packed. We have been jam-packed this morning. We're anticipating that we'll be jam-packed tonight uh, because of someone sitting next to us. Uh, but at the same time, we're kind of mellow right well, now. Well, I don't, I don't really trust you anymore because if I was not here to say not jam-packed, I, hey, you would have gone with it. Here's the deal. I just made myself a Nicene mocha, yeah. and I took like three big sips of it, yeah. and I think I had a surge of just nonsense come out of me <laughs> related to the mocha. So I think I'm back in my right Tell me what a Nicene mind. mocha is. A Nicene mocha is uh, amazing chocolate uh, stuff that we have here with a little bit chocolate of... Chocolate stuff that we have here. Yes. That was not good. Okay, I mean, it's, ch- it's... Without getting technical, it's let's just... Let's get it's, technical. Come on. Here, let me tell you what it is, okay? Okay, so... Well, no, I'll, I'll, I'll say to, okay. to redeem myself, okay? okay? So we get this amazing chocolate powder, okay. and it's the best way to make a mocha by far. And we've tested all the other ways. From where? Big train? Big train. We, we mix it up a little bit with some hot water, yeah. and then we add an ounce of vanilla. Uh, vanilla stuff from from Monin, vanilla syrup from Monin. And then we start with a triple shot espresso shot uh, from Elemental, who is our amazing coffee roaster. And then, uh, and then we froth milk. We don't heat milk, but we froth milk, which is turning milk into microfoam at 140 degrees Fahrenheit. And then we incorporate that into the drink, and that is the Nicene Mocha. My head's exploding. <laughs> <laughs> which that is a great statement to hear from our guest. <laughs> and who was it that just said that? That is a uh, was Dr. that Sam? No, actually not. We've upgraded Sam for this week. <laughs> no offense to Sam. Uh, we love Sam dearly. but one of I love s- Sam, too, I'll tell you. <laughs> one of Sam's classmates at Dallas Seminary and a friend, I think you guys would consider each other oh, absolutely. friends, uh, Dr. J.P. Moreland happens to be here this week, and we are really excited to have him here. J.P., it is great to have you. It is a blast to be here. Yeah, this is uh, Theology Unplugged, and we are here with J.P. Come on. I know. Give me a break. I mean, I mean all of the crowd. Come on. <laughs> yeah. And, We're uh, packing them out, folks. Yeah. And I will tell my kids and my grandkids and my great-grandkids that my explanation of a mocha made J.P. Moreland's head explode. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Something you can be proud of. Yeah. Well, guys, this is a special broadcast, as you know, anytime that we have the uh, Coffee with Scholars, our day with scholars, to where we have our membership lunch and then hang out during the day. We do do a Theology Unplugged with the Scholar, mm-hmm. and um, uh, tonight we will ha- be having a special event. So you're probably listening to this afterwards, even though it's going to be posted today. We just had our special event. A lot of you guys may have been here. The mass, mass majority of you guys in other states and across the world were not here, but uh, we wish that you were. 
for because I, I can say right now it probably was a really good thing because mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it has been so far. JP is um, – is I, I would like to say JP is a friend of mine, and I think he is, but he's more of a hero, and that's, uh, that's uh, what you have heard me say before. He uh, – author of many books. I mean we, we had a big pile of them here earlier, and we sold most of them, but the one that stands out the most for me is Love Your God With All Your Mind. Scaling the Secular City is more of the comprehensive apologetics book that he has. And he also – I'll ask you about this in a little bit, JP. You have this new book, Smart Faith. I didn't know it existed until we ordered it, and I'm trying to see what the difference is between this and that. Kingdom Triangle, uh, the God question, on and on. We could go professor at Biola yes. or uh, Talbot. That's right. Talbot, uh, Talbot School of Seminary. Theology uh, at Biola University. Yes. That's right. yes. Yeah. How, how long have you been at Talbot? 22 years. Wow. Yeah. wow. It's been a wonderful great. time. Uh, teaches uh, in the philosophy department. I teach in the philosophy department. Is it an apologetics department or do they No, have we have together? two separate departments. One's apologetics uh, 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 under the leadership of Craig Hazen mm-hmm. and our is the Department of Philosophy, graduate philosophy. Now, did Craig Hazen, was he a disciple of yours? <laughs> no. Uh, we have independent uh, trajectories, hmm. but we're dear friends, and I uh, consider him a really close brother. Very close to philosophy and apologetics, Oh, very right? much so, absolutely. Yeah, yeah you bet. Um, it's hard for me, as, a, as I do theology, to place it, but I usually place apologetics under the umbrella of theology as a subset of theology. Yes. Um, and philosophy, it's hard for me to place that, but it's, I, I think of it more like the theology is the engine that runs the car, and the philosophy itself is the is the uh, functioning of the car or something. Yes, I think I think the idea of philosophy as a set of tools to aid theology mm-hmm. and to aid apologetics is a good way I like to think of it. Um, you are uh, uh, known and loved as as a philosopher um, around Christian communities. You teach the classes at Biola. What type of classes do you teach? I mean, what, what does your schedule look like? Yeah, my specialization is metaphysics and philosophy of mind. Metaphysics is the philosophical study of reality. It's an attempt to, to see what we can know about reality by pure thinking mm-hmm. uh, without experimenting. And there are things we can know about reality by, by just my thinking about it. And uh, then I teach philosophy of mind. What, what is a human person... Um, is there a soul? Things of that sort. Am very, I my brain? Very much a crossover there in theology. Very, very much so, yes. What, what would you say, JP, if someone's like, ooh, metaphysics, ooh, philosophy, I've never heard of these things, or I didn't know like a Christian could go into this area. Uh, what's a good starting point for people in these two fields? Well, Christianity has always uh, embraced philosophy as, as a set of tools to help theology. Ever since the beginning of the church, uh, for the first three to four centuries, uh, being a philosopher was almost synonymous with being a Christian. Almost mm. all the philosophers were incorporated into the church. Uh, but I would say that there are a number of works that can be helpful to a person, mm. um, depending on what they're interested in. Uh, but there is a book that uh, I wrote with Gary DeWeese called Philosophy Made Slightly Less Difficult, uh, which is an introductory text in, in philosophy for people that are interested. In I, I like how you say slightly yeah. less <laughs> difficult. Right. That's good. That's right. What, what, talk, talk to us a minute about metaphysics and talk to us about the people that are listening to this. And you, I can convince them of the need to know that Christ is dual nature and how that relates to you and how he's one person within that dual nature. And I, I think I can grab a hold of that yes. and say, I can convince you that this is something you need to study. How do you convince somebody that they need to study metaphysics? Well, the, 
metaphysics uh, studies things like uh, what is reality? Uh, are there things that exist that aren't physical? Um, is there a soul? Is there free will? What is it? Um, what is a person? Um, what are space and time? Uh, these are questions that are asked in, in metaphysics, and they're very, very important and interesting questions. And the church has a vested interest in it because we don't want to say, with all due respect to science, and I love science, but we don't want to feed scientism, which is a f philosophical standpoint that says that science is the only source of knowledge that we can have about reality and that philosophy and theology are just language games or ways of kind of shuffling your prejudices. No, theology provides knowledge of reality, as does philosophy, alongside science. Uh, it has always been part of the church's self-understanding, Michael, that um, theology, biblical teaching, Christian philosophy provided us with trustworthy knowledge about truth and reality. And it's only been in the last century that the idea has come about that science is really the only guide that we have. So metaphysics is a way to try to break the stranglehold that scientism has on people's minds. Mm -hmm. And in philosophy, whenever we're dealing with philosophy, we, 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 I tell people, whenever we're in theology, first day of introduction to theology, second day, second day, all we're doing is trying to convince them, you are already a theologian, period. There's no way around it. You've had thoughts about God. You have some type of conclusions. Even if you say, I can't know God, that's a theology, then it has to be defended in some sense. Is it the same thing with philosophy? Absolutely. Everybody is a theologian. Everybody is a philosopher because they have a view about what's right and wrong, what the state should be and shouldn't be, what's real, what we can know and not know, so on. Uh, everybody is being formed spiritually. Uh, I don't care who you are. You are being formed by somebody or by something. That's not an option. So uh, you might as well try to be a good theologian. You might as well mm -hmm. try to be a decent philosopher. And you might as well try to be formed by Jesus Christ and his gospel <laughs> because you're going to be formed by something. How would you define a good theologian? Well, a couple of different ways. I think the first and foremost thing that I would expect from a good theologian is biblical fidelity, uh, a person who would seek to unpack a system of thinking that would build upon and be consistent with the teachings of the Scriptures. I think the second thing that I would uh, define a good theologian as would be a theologian for the church. Uh, what I mean by that is that the theologian has in mind his obligation to be faithful to the evangelical and, and more broadly Christian community and to be an ambassador on its behalf. And I think the third thing is a good theologian would be someone who is keeping abreast of the conversations that are happening relevant to his or her area of study. What would you, that was great stuff. I, mean, I want to just sit down with my mocha and, and sip on that for a while. Uh, but what would what would you say, especially to maybe uh, a young theologian or someone that that's really eager right now? What are a few things that make for a bad theologian? I think one of the things that makes for a bad theologian is someone who does not have a very strong sense of self. Now, let me explain to you what I mean by that. I just recently met some theologians that are involved in doing graduate degrees in theology in the Ivy League. And in my view, they don't have a very strong sense of their identity in Christ. Because of that, 
they go to graduate school to study theology and they want to fit in. They want to be like their professors. They want the other grad students to think they're okay. And consequently, they absorb the views that their teachers are teaching because they primarily want to be liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that if a person's going to be a good, solid, faithful, biblical, and the- systematic theologian, that he or she needs to have a very deep sense of confidence as to who they are in Christ so that they're willing to be in the minority if they need to be in order to be faithful. Uh, so I see a bad theology as rooted in hubris or arrogance or a desire to be somebody or to, to appear smart. Uh, and I think those are all very bad reasons. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Ethics is part of um, your department, right? It is. You bet. Do you teach on ethics much? Not anymore. Uh, I used to, but we have da- uh, David Horner and Scott Ray that teach uh, in the department. Uh, let's talk about the um, the existence of morals for a yes. moment. Yes, yes. Um, do morals exist? And let me let me back up and say this. I'm asking that in a very general textbook. Here's the headline, Do Morals Exist? Now, unpack the options. Well, yes, there are objective moral values that are real, and um, we bump up against them all the time. Uh, If a person says, I don't believe in objective moral values, all you have to do is find out what they care about, treat it as though it were relative, and see what happens. So a guy told me he was a relativist, and I started walking out of his dorm room with a stereo. And all of a sudden, he became an absolutist about stealing. Uh, So uh, everybody knows that there are objective values, uh, and the alternative to that would be to espouse some version of relativism, which would roughly be the idea that whatever is right for you or your community is right for you and your community, but it might not be right for me and my community, and no one is really wrong. So that would be an alternative to the idea that moral values are objectively real. Or let's go back to metaphysics. Metaphysics, do they, we use big terms sometimes like ontology or essence. Uh, Is there an essence or an ontology to morality, and how do we find that? Yes. um, um, Moral properties... Uh, are actually real. Take, take God, for example. God has a number of properties or attributes, omnipotence and things like that, but he also has value properties, virtues. He's kind. He has the property of being merciful. He has the property of being honest. These are attributes that he possesses. Now, take a child. A child might have the property of being 18 inches long, uh, weighing 20 pounds, having such and such a skin color. Those would be attributes that the child would have. But the child also has the property of having intrinsic value. Now, that intrinsic value is rooted in the fact that that child actually bears the image of God. But it is a real property the child has uh, that that is rooted in that child being an image bearer. So p- part of the furniture of the universe Part of what's real are moral properties and and, uh, moral propositions and values. 
Yeah, I don't want to get too far uh, maybe uh, above what the listeners are acclimated towards, and hopefully we can build into this because I think it's important because I want to talk about homosexuality in just a moment uh, because that's a big deal right now uh, as far as morals. There's a there's a uh, theory in your department of studies, and I think it would probably be a crossover with theology as well, about divine command theory concerning uh, – uh, what is right and what is wrong and how what is right and what is wrong. And I think the other one is called realism. Is that right? <laughs> Explain that to us. Well, if you are a, div- a traditional divine command theorist, your idea is that right and wrong turns out to be whatever God commands. Which uh, sounds great, though, right? It sounds great on the surface. Uh, on the, the bad part of it, as stated, is that it roots right and wrong in God's will rather than in his character. So the divine command theory really doesn't take into account uh, the nature of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, realism is basically the view that moral properties are real, like I just mm-hmm. espoused mm-hmm. a second ago. But there are two versions of realism. There is a uh, Platonistic version of realism that says that moral values exist and they're independent of God. And there's a theistic version that says moral values are real, but they are grounded in God's nature. Now, if you hold, like I do, the theistic realist view, then you have a new kind of divine command theory uh, where you say that right and wrong is imposed upon us not simply by God's arbitrary will, but by, by his will which follows from his intrinsically good, wise character. So the ultimate ground for the moral law is the good nature of God, not simply his will. Mm. It's important to see this because uh, the, the, the moral law then is rooted in God as creator, not just God as willer. Mm. And now let's get to some real practical stuff, whether it be abortion or, or homosexuality. And let's relate to that to the relativism that we have today where people – I think I think so many people are, um, from the image of God's standpoint, are trying to think this thing through in a way that they want to be kind. You know, I, I mean, sometimes it's very easy for us Christians to say it's just them wanting to be evil whenever they want us to accept gay marriage or or to allow um, uh, this this woman to make her own choice. I think a lot of people really have this intrinsic thing that they're thinking, I am being kind by this. And based upon relativism, right and wrong being you know my individual choice, then um, this is the kindest thing for me to do since there is no eternal right and wrong. But when we talk about issues like gay marriage or just uh, homosexuality in general, what we're saying is that with regard to the issues, you and I as Christians are not, number one, commanding it ourselves for sure. Right. We're not even saying that God commands it and then it's wrong. We're saying that there's something intrinsic in the eternal character of God that sets these rules. And, interestingly, in the nature of a human being, because Romans 1 tells us that homosexuality is not contrary to the commands of God. It's contrary to the nature that God put in us. So I was on a talk show, a secular talk show, and the host said, why are evangelicals so angry about homosexuality? And I said, we're not. I'm not angry about it. I just think it's wrong. Well, why do you think it's wrong? And I said, for the same reason that I think driving your car in the bottom of the Pacific Ocean is wrong. 
Uh, if you take your car and drive it on the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, it's not going to last very long because it's not functioning the way it was made to function. Mm-hmm. And what kind, of a, what kind of a neighbor would I be if I saw my neighbors taking their car down to the beach and heading down in the, in, in the salt water, and I knew that that was going to ruin their car if I never took the time and tried to warn them that if you keep this up, your car is going to rust out and it won't last more than two months. Uh, that wouldn't be very loving because uh, sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to tell people hard things. Similarly, homosexuality is not the way we were made by nature to function. So if you want to flourish as a human being and you want to live a fully human life that's vibrant and flourishing, you have to act according to the nature that God made us to function in light of. And you don't want to act contrary to that nature because whenever something acts contrary to its nature, it doesn't work well. And that's why we think that homosexuality is wrong. It is contrary to the way God made us to work. One thing that I've been communicating to people... Oh, hold on just a second. Okay. okay, go ahead, brother. You guys, if you all have any questions or anything, just kind of raise your hand and I'll, we'll, we'll take notice of it. I'll take notice over here. You take notice over there. And then we can incorporate some of the audience questions if we need to. Mm-hmm. Uh, go ahead. Uh, regarding homosexuality, one of the things that, that I've been chewing on is Wesley's quadrilateral uh, of looking at, at tradition, scripture, reason, and experience. And I, th- I think part of what I'm, I'm seeing when, when you listen to uh, pop culture music and stuff like that and, and people is it seems like our experience and even perhaps our reason to some degree uh, more and more are telling us that homosexuality is fine that nothing is wrong with it in a certain sense, that, you know, hey, I know this person down the street, that their relationship is actually better than this heterosexual relationship that I know, or something like that. So you, there might be certain amounts of experience that may be telling us um, just as much as, as an extreme example as I could have experience that tells me that God doesn't love me. I could go down this list and say, look at this, 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 and this. This shows that God doesn't love me. But the beauty of Scripture is that Scripture is our final authority. And so experience is an authority, but with Scripture being a final authority is that if everything in my life tells me that God hates me, Scripture beautifully tells me that God loves me. And if everything in my world starts to tell me that homosexuality is fine— that scripture, I think, says, just like your car example, that, uh, that in the heart of God there is something better. Well, I think you're absolutely right about that, Tim. And I would even go a little further uh, and say that uh, the God of uh, general revelation and creation is the same God mm-hmm. of special revelation, as I'm sure you would agree. Mm-hmm. And um, I would want to draw a distinction between uh, experience and reason as a natural response to the creation versus a highly enculturated form of reason and experience. That's good. The idea uh, that you rightly point out that reason and experience today are being marshaled to support homosexuality is an expression of a highly culturally indoctrinated form of reason and experience. By contrast, the natural response of reason and experience to the created world, as evidenced by cultures for millennia all across the world, is that homosexuality and gay marriage are not right. Um, As far as reason goes, I believe it is self-evident that homosexuality is not normal. It's not right. I also believe that it's evident to the senses. Let me explain what I mean by that. If I saw a key and uh, I saw a doorknob and a trash can. It would be evident to my senses by looking at that key that it was made to fit in that doorknob, not to fit in the trash can. 
Similarly, if you expect male and female body parts, it becomes evident to the senses that, that the male uh, sexual organ was meant to fit into a female body, not a male body. So I believe that homosexuality is evident to experience, to the senses, as well as to reason that it's self-evident. Mm -hmm. But I believe the ultimate authority is, of course, Scripture, but I believe the natural moral law through experience and reason supports Scripture. It is only the highly culturally indoctrinated Johnny-come-lately form of reason and experience that mm -hmm. goes the opposite direction. That's or, good. That's you know, good. adding a component to Wesley's quadrilateral, uh, which we do in the theology program. We, mm -hmm. we, we separate experience into experience that is, that is things that happen to you and mm -hmm. things that you observe mm -hmm. to and emotions. Mm -hmm. And emotions plays a big part. Huge, huge yeah. part. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, with the absolute with with the denial of truth outside science, we have the absolutization of desire satisfaction. That is to say, when truth was dethroned, the absolute for American life is the satisfaction of desire instantly. So instant gratification becomes the goal of life, huh. and evil is defined as whatever thwarts the immediate satisfaction of gratification. Huh. Mm -hmm. That's good. But you know, talking about this and, and living. It's so it's so much fun to talk about this with among us, and it, it's so much fun to, to start to reason and build our case. But this this assumes that we are doing our homework in philosophy, mm -hmm. and we're building to where we have common ground to which we can build these things. And the thing is, we just live in a culture that is less and less inclined to use our minds or to um, engage in such issues. And another reason, JP, we appreciate you so much and, and you know, smart faith and love the Lord with all your mind, uh, encouraging us just to be thinkers. Question over here? Yes. I had a question. When you spoke uh, about homosexuality going against the nature uh, with which God created us, uh, you you sort of gave this Aristotelian idea of, of you should act according to your nature because that that will help you flourish as a human. Um, so someone who is struggling with homosexuality, would you say then that they should act according to their nature and try to be heterosexual, or is that something that they should um, sort of cope with on their own if they're they're not able to have these heter heterosexual attractions uh, as as the majority of people are, do they do they go on just living sort of asexually, or do they they try to be heterosexual? Well, I'm not an expert in term. I'm not a psychologist, so I I would defer to those who know more about the specifics of of the therapeutic process than I. But as a philosopher, I would say that in principle, I don't know why every person couldn't eventually get to the point where they worked through their 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 childhood issues and other issues that I believe are ultimately responsible for the homosexual lifestyle and be, begin to embrace a heterosexual point of view. If, in fact, that becomes difficult, then I think celibacy has got to be the solution. And by the way, that's what we all have to practice. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was celibate uh, until I, after I became a Christian at the, the age of 20 until 29 years old when I got married. And those were in the 20s when I was very sexually alive. Uh, but I had to say no to those desires because because there were things more important than that, obeying God's God for one thing. So um, I'm not expecting uh, a gay person to do anything that I haven't been willing to do myself. And if I hadn't got married, I would have stayed celibate as well. 
I think it's good too to think to realize that Jesus is a part of this equation too. That I mean, all of us as being as being wretched sinners, uh, desperately in need of our Savior every moment to be able to live the life that He calls us to, which is a better life. I mean, that's why I teach my six and five and two year old too. Is that Daddy's telling you these things that you would follow God, not so that I would lead you to this miserable life, but that this would truly give you a deep joy. And uh, and that it's only in going to Him that you have that any of us have any hope of the great joy that He holds out to us and said, "Would you please follow me?" And as we all know, uh, some of the the deepest times of joy in the Lord are the times when we are as desperate as desperate can be for Him to do the impossible in our life. And it's hard because because sometimes. Um it's not. I mean, it's a th- we live with thorns in our flesh. Yeah. Um, we, we could all tell about the thorns in our flesh individually that that you eventually you just bear, you know. And I, I do feel for someone who has uh, the same sex attraction and has to live with that, and maybe it just doesn't change, mm-hmm. and it will be a thorn in the flesh. Well, and yeah, absolutely, and welcome to the club. I mean, yeah. we all have them, like you said, and uh, some of the things that have endeared me most to the the Lord Jesus has have been the things that I've had to struggle with, right. and and frankly, we all know struggling and pain are occasions for great maturity and growth. And we we want to solve things. We are solvers. We are solvers, especially in Western culture. And and when we see that the solving is enough, you can satisfy yourself. You know, here's an option. It's easy to take that road because we do want people to be happy because we don't want to have the burden of somebody else around us that is unhappy. And in the end, sometimes our moral leanings are very selfish. That's a very good word. That's a very good word. See that. Yeah, and and I think one thing that we mentioned uh, when we teach on pain and suffering is that we all think that our life is going to be if we enter a Job situation that our life will end like the Book of Job ends that God will end up you know, restoring to us and taking us to this much higher level and we usually share the story of the rich man and Lazarus and where where Lazarus is is by the gate and uh, and he's there and it says he dies dogs looking at sword and he dies and he dies i mean he never no he never saw the restoration and you can look at abraham you can look at jacob's telling pharaoh i've had you know my life has been an evil life and uh, and you can just kind of go down the, the list of lives and you know amy carmichael is a good example of That's someone good, who, yes. who was who had terrible things happen to her was bedridden for decades i think and is known for her poetry and it's not the poetry that she wrote uh, of you know being healed it's the poetry that she wrote in her current state that's right that's right jp um we've got uh we're just about out of time here but uh having you here at the credo house is just a is a great thing it is not a thorn in my flesh at all <laughs> i'm glad to hear that <laughs> might be a thorn in his flesh yeah, yeah, it, could <laughs> it could be but uh, we thank you for the work that you're doing in philosophy that you're currently doing that you continue to do and we um, ask all of our listeners out there just to pause right now while you're listening to this and pray for jp uh, pray for his strength. Pray that the enemy does not defeat him any day of the week, that he is able to uh, be protected because he is on the front lines. And uh, we want him to remain on the front lines. And it makes me more comfortable having him on the front lines. Um, and so I ask a selfish prayer 
uh, for myself because I want him there. So pray for Jacob. Well, thank you, my brothers, and thanks for what you're doing at Credo House and through your ministries. Until next week. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.